Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everybody. This is Rob Monaco stopping by from the podcast history of our world. If you've ever listened to my program before, you'll know I do things a bit differently than our brilliant Basileus Robin. With so many topics to cover, I need to keep a brisk pace if I'm ever going to reach the modern world. That'll inevitably put my path towards the city of Constantine, but honestly, we already have the best voice and mind on the job. Uh, who else can guide us through the sometimes peculiar but always interesting history of the Byzantine Empire? Or is it Eastern Roman Empire? Well, never mind that for now. Instead, get ready for the next episode with our esteemed host, Robin Pearson. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 84, Imperial Territory. Welcome back to Byzantium. After looking west and then east, we now return to the Roman Empire in 800 AD. The 8th century was, in many ways, about coming to terms with the new reduced status of the empire. Back in the 690s, it was still possible for men like Justinian II to believe that the Arab tide could be rolled back. But the experience of the siege and a century of constant raiding had changed everyone's mind. The 8th century could be viewed as rock bottom for the Roman Empire. The permanent loss of Cilicia and Armenia, Ravenna and finally Rome. The empire had never been smaller. The economy was at its lowest ebb. We have fewer coins surviving from this century than any other in the imperial period. Roman culture had suffered a serious blow. Apart from biographies of a few saints, no highbrow literature or art survives from this time. Very little was being produced. Those that believed Constantine V's military success marked some kind of turning point were quickly disabused. Harun al-Rashid led giant armies into Anatolia, forcing Irene to hand over tribute in exchange for peace. But how does the saying go? Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you can rise up? Already we've seen signs of a Roman recovery. Back in 700 AD, Byzantine control of the Balkans was limited entirely to the coasts. By 800, a large chunk of Thrace and parts of Greece have been brought back into the empire. This is the start of a journey which will culminate in a couple of hundred years with the Romans back in control of most of the peninsula 
and marching in the other direction to retake parts of the east. So today we're going to take a look at imperial territory. What's left? What borders it? And remind ourselves which province is which. All of this will be accompanied by maps, which several listeners have asked for. I haven't been able to find good ones online, so you'll have to put up with my slightly dodgy scans. We'll start with a map of the Empire in 780. It comes from Warren Treadgold's book, A History of the Byzantine State and Society. Apparently no one's that interested in what the Empire looked like in 800 AD precisely. I can find maps for about 15 years into the future or 20 into the past. Anyway, this map has plenty of detail and is, of course, posted on the website, Facebook, and Twitter. Let's begin in the far west and work our way east. Furthest to the west is the island of Sicily, one of the few areas of the empire to escape largely unscathed from the horrors of the past two centuries. As you may remember from the history of Rome, Sicily was a productive grain-growing region that the early empire used to feed the capital. Despite being outstripped by Africa and then Egypt, Sicily continued to be a valuable exporter of food right up to 800 AD. The importance of the island was recognised by the emperors. Justinian I put Sicily under the control of a praetor directly responsible to him, the same arrangement that governed Egypt. More recently, of course, Constans II made Syracuse his home as he tried to protect Byzantium's western possessions from the expanding caliphate. After the fall of Carthage, Sicily became increasingly important as a source of grain. Rome, Ravenna, Thessalonica and Constantinople all came calling. But once the Arabs had their own navy, the authorities felt that they couldn't rely on Sicilian shipping to feed the capital. Increasingly, Constantinople turned to its Asian hinterland for food, and by 800, Paphlagonia, the region in north-central Anatolia, was the capital's chief supplier. Listener G asks why Sicily remained solidly in Byzantine hands despite nearby Africa being captured multiple times. The easiest answer to this is that Sicily is an island, and so an invading force must have a dominant navy in order to seize it. Carthage, on the other hand, and the African territory around it can more easily be invaded by land. The Vandals were no sea power when they crossed into Africa back in the 5th century. They just managed to ferry themselves across the Straits of Gibraltar from where their land forces could move east. Similarly, the invading Arabs took a while to establish their camps along the desert road from Egypt, but once they did, they advanced west. As I mentioned during the episodes about the Caliphate, there were a series of very severe rebellions by the Berber population in the middle of this last century. The Berbers were a nomadic, pastoral people and were similar in many ways to the original Arab tribesmen who'd followed Muhammad. They took to Islam very quickly, but instead of bringing them closer in line with Umayyad policies, the new religion fueled the already independent spirit of the Berbers. They had spent centuries resisting Roman and Vandal control, and heading into the 9th century, they would ignore the calls of Baghdad as well. 
This dominance of African politics by the Bedouin meant that there wasn't the appetite or infrastructure to man a navy capable of capturing Sicily. However, that won't always be the case. And why didn't the Caliphate attempt to capture Sicily during one of its major naval expeditions? Here we come up against the tides and winds of the eastern Mediterranean. They vary according to season, of course, but the general rule is that it's easier to sail from north to south, or in a clockwise direction, than it is the other way. Back in the days of the United Empire, it might take a grain ship from Alexandria 70 days to get to Rome. Once it had dumped its cargo into a granary at Ostia, it then took only 20 days to get back to the Nile. This helps explain why the Byzantines were able to successfully counterattack and land an army at both Alexandria and Carthage after each had initially fallen. It also adds to the impregnable position of Constantinople. The Arabs needed giant fleets if they were going to crawl all the way to the Bosphorus to besiege it. Hence why Sicily, sitting so far west, had so far avoided the attention of the Arabs. Moving east on our map, we come to Italy. As you know, Rome and Ravenna are gone. The Franks are now the dominant power in the north. The papacy has carved out an independent role for itself in the centre, and the Lombard Principality of Benevento controls the south. The remaining Byzantine possessions are just the toe and heel of the peninsula, both guarded by imperial troops. But you can see that Naples and other small towns on the west coast are nominally Byzantine too. What these cities actually represent are small independent territories that were happy to acknowledge the suzerainty of the emperor for their own benefit. These towns did not forward tax to Constantinople, nor did they figure in the empire's strategic planning. As I understand it, the Neapolitan decision to remain a part of Byzantium was mainly to avoid being dominated by the papacy. By claiming allegiance to the emperor, they could chart their own course, knowing they had at least nominal imperial backing. It was a fiction which suited both sides, and Byzantine cultural influence remained strong in those areas. To the north, a similar arrangement predominated in Venice. As you may know, Venice lies in the very northeast corner of Italy, but avoided conquest by the Lombards because so much of its territory is located on small islands just off the coast. A couple of episodes ago, I outlined the development of internal politics at Rome, and the situation in Venice was quite similar. The imperial garrison guarding it slowly became part of the local elite and developed their own priorities rather than waiting for orders from Constantinople. Unlike Rome, though, Venice invested in its navy and began to develop itself as a commercial centre. For most of our podcast narrative, Venice has been surrounded by other Byzantine territory. Istria, part of modern Croatia in the east, and the Exarchate of Ravenna to the south. Only in this last century have the Venetians become isolated and begun to forge a relatively independent path. 
As you know, during Leo III's reign, there was lots of conflict between Constantinople and its Italian territories. In 727, the Venetians elected their own dukes, or doge, rather than rely on appointments from the capital. However, they continued to offer naval support to the exarch, and so Leo simply confirmed their appointment, unofficially suggesting, we'll let you govern your own affairs as long as you continue to work with us. As with Naples, this arrangement suited both parties. The emperors knew that Venice was a valuable ally. It served as a listening post for news from the West, and an important commercial and military port. But of course, the emperors couldn't really afford to man the city themselves, so as long as the Venetians remained loyal, all would be well. The Venetians, of course, wanted to be independent, and so maintaining ties to a far-off emperor kept the more local papal and Frankish monarchs at bay. The relationship was not entirely cynical, though. Again, Byzantine culture was valued by the Venetians. Roman titles and fashions continued to be popular on the islands, and Constantinople's trading needs were a primary economic concern. When the narrative resumes, Charlemagne will place Venice under the control of his son, and the new emperor Nicephorus will send a fleet to intervene. From now onwards, the city will play an increasingly important role in the history of Byzantium. If you follow the Adriatic coast south, then you can see more small outposts of the empire which have clung on. Ragusa is modern Dubrovnik, or you may recognise it as King's Landing. Dyrrhachium is the old gateway for shipping to Italy, and birthplace of the emperor Anastasius. These cities, or port towns, had been able to bar the gates and maintain contact with Constantinople by sea. Unlike Naples or Venice, they didn't possess wealth that would allow them to chart their own course, so their loyalty to the empire was more authentic. Inland, the former Roman provinces of Epirus and Macedonia remain blank spots in the historical record. We know that some populations of ex-Romans still lived there, but so did plenty of Slav tribes and other minorities like the future Albanians. No literature or record survives of what was happening, but the Byzantines had their eyes on reclaiming the area as evidenced by Irene's creation of a new theme of Macedonia. Back to the coast, though, and a little further south from Dyrrhachium, we come to the islands to the west of the Greek mainland, and we're now entering firmly incorporated imperial territory. Those western islands were under the command of an imperial official known as an archon, hence the description of that area as the Archonate of Cephalonia. Now we're moving into the lands that feature every week in the narrative. Greece, as we think of it today, was one of the first areas to be targeted for reassimilation into the empire. One of the things which this map doesn't show is the effects of the eunuch Stavrakios' campaign into the area during Irene's first period in charge. That expedition had cowed the local Slav tribes and made it clear to them that they would now be expected to pay tax and take orders from the commander of the theme of Hellas. By the time we next update the map, most of Greece 
will be officially a part of the empire again. Slowly, this was bringing an end to the isolation of Thessalonica, the city to the northeast, which held out despite so many attacks from local Slavs and the Avars. We have more evidence for events around Thessalonica over the past couple of centuries than anywhere else in the Balkans, and it's fairly safe to use it as a template for developments elsewhere. The citizens of Thessalonica needed the people living outside the walls. They wanted grain and other animal products, and the mostly Slav residents of the countryside wanted finished goods or seafood. Exchanges like these went on for generations, with some Greek-speaking Romans learning the Slavic tongue and plenty of Slavs aspiring to be Romans. Left to their own devices, some sort of hybrid culture might have developed. But the resurgence of Byzantine power meant that the local Slavs were the ones who would adapt. Slowly, more and more people learnt Greek to further their social position and began going to church. As in many places, full Romanization took many generations, but in the short term, the path to wealth led down the road to Constantinople and its culture dominated. We can imagine a similar situation unfolding down in Greece, where cities like Athens and Corinth maintained their Byzantine culture and the local Slavs followed suit. Listener N asked how important a role Athens played in the history of the empire. Unless you're talking spiritually, the answer is not important at all. Athens was well remembered for its cultural achievements and remained a tourist spot. But politically, it was a small city in a relatively insignificant part of the empire. The Aegean Islands and Crete come next as we move east, and they had all remained in Byzantine hands because of the difficulty which the Arab navy had found in maintaining itself further west. The islands continued to prosper, in spite of the odd volcanic eruption. They exported wine, oil, cheese and pottery to the coastal cities of Europe and Asia. This brings me to our second map uh, for today. This one comes from John Halden's Atlas of Byzantine History and shows all the goods produced in each region of the empire. To the north of the islands is Thrace, a region you should be thoroughly familiar with now after 84 episodes. This is of course the region which leads down toward Constantinople and has been the stage for multiple dramatic incidents, including the two great sieges and all those battles with the Bulgars. Thrace has therefore been the site of the greatest amount of imperial investment over the past century. Constantine V campaigned here throughout his career and forcibly relocated Syrian Christians here. Then Irene campaigned and toured around the area, rebuilding fortifications and abandoned cities, trying to turn Thrace into a prosperous, tax-paying land once again. Solid information is tricky to come by, but we believe Adrianople was the largest city in the region at this time. The investment in re-establishing it had drawn in many settlers, and the installation of the themes of Thrace and Macedonia in the vicinity gave the local farmers some customers to do business with. The Thracian plain was always a fertile, grain-growing region, but the main hindrance to growth and prosperity was the animosity between Byzantium 
and the Bulgar Khanate to the north. The Hemus Mountains provided a natural barrier between the two states, but neither side was comfortable with the presence of the other. We'll talk more about the Bulgars when we discuss military matters in a few episodes' time. East of Thrace is, of course, Constantinople, but I won't be pausing in the capital today. I'm really looking forward to doing another episode dedicated entirely to the streets of the city, but it will come at the end of another century. What I will say, though, is that the historians, uh, I believe, guesstimate that the population of the capital was no more than 100,000 at this time, and probably less. As we saw during the plague which hit in the middle of the century, Bodies were being buried within the Constantinian walls, the old walls of the city. There was apparently no need to go out beyond them to the large tracts of farm and garden which led to the Theodosian walls. The capital may be about to start growing, though. Certainly, the reopening of the aqueduct of Valence makes it possible to sustain a larger population. So, moving east, we come to Anatolia. Several of you asked questions about geography and topography, some of which I've covered before, but I will briefly go over it again. It certainly is important to understand the basics of Anatolian geography to fully understand Roman history. There are three distinct areas of Anatolia. The coastal plains, the central plateau and the mountain ranges which separate them. These areas are clearly marked on the base map that I've used during the narrative. Let's take the coastal plains first. The north coast has some very prosperous farmland, including that of Paphlagonia, which is now the main supplier of grain to the capital. While down the Aegean coast, you have the greatest concentration of cities and wealth living off the western plains. Across the south coast, passing through Isauria, there is more good farmland, concluding with Cilicia, on the other side of the Taurus Mountains, now in Arab hands. These coastal zones offer similar farming land to Italy, Carthage, and the south of France. The farmers here grew wheat and barley, alongside the typical Mediterranean fare of vines, olives, and fruit. Generally speaking, because they were protected by an inner zone of mountain ranges, the people living along the coast tended to avoid the worst of the Arab raids. They also contained the majority of the population. To give you a better sense of the distribution of people, here comes another map. Again, thanks to Professor Treadgold. He uses the list of bishops given at the Ecumenical Council of 787 to chart where all the cities in the empire were located. It's definitely worth checking out, as it shows you the weight of population in western Anatolia compared to the relatively sparse east. Let's return to the mountains which shielded the people on the coasts. Those in the west were the smallest, while those in the east, the Armenian and the Taurus ranges, were much higher. In the north you have the Pontic range, and in the south are the mountains of Isauria. 
People still lived and farmed here, but they were restricted to the rivers which could support settlements. Many of these mountainous areas were densely wooded, which you can see on the resources map where timber is available. Some were also good sources of iron and other precious metals. These mountains were crucial to maintaining the independence of the Roman Empire. They provided a daunting physical barrier to Arab invasion. After you'd worn yourself out crossing the eastern range and plateau, more awaited you in the west. Speaking of the plateau, it lay between the coastal lowlands and the mountain heights. This landscape of salt lakes and semi-arid land was not really suitable for farming, again outside of the occasional river valley. Temperatures could be extreme, with very hot summers and freezing winters. You can see on the map an absence of cities in the centre of the peninsula. This land was generally used for livestock during the warmer months of the year. Pigs, cows, horses, goats and a lot of sheep. This land might in theory have made a good home for the Bedouin Arabs, but the harsh winter conditions made it difficult to establish a new settlement. And of course the mountains surrounding it allowed the Byzantines too many hideouts from which to counterattack. Within this geographic framework, the regions of Anatolia should begin to take shape. Let's break it down into four parts for simplicity. In the top left, you have Bithynia, a wealthy area home to the mansions and country homes of the richest Byzantines. This region contains the ancient cities of Nicomedia and Nicaea, along with essentially suburbs of the capital in Chrysopolis and Chalcedon. The main military road runs through here, past Maligna and Dorylaeum, where various dramatic incidents from the past century have played out. This area was unlikely to be raided by the Arabs unless the Caliph himself was present or sponsoring a large expedition. The wealth of the region was aided by the large number of troops stationed nearby. Some regiments of the Tahmata lived on the coast, the Optimates were nearby, ready to man their baggage trains, and then further east was the home of the Bacalarian theme, after they were split off from the Obsikion, who were stationed to the west, near the Hellespont. Soldiers were paid in gold, and therefore created a market for local farmers and local artisanal production. In the bottom left of Anatolia, you come to the old province of Asia, where cities like Smyrna and Ephesus remain important ports. This was the most heavily populated part of the empire and shielded by the Thracision theme. Only on major, major raids, or during the siege of 717, would enemy troops arrive in this area. The far south was guarded by the marines of the Kiviriotan theme. The top right of Anatolia is the home of the Armeniakon. Naturally, this province was home to many people of Armenian descent, and its mountains stretch far into the east and up north toward the Caucasus. This was, of course, the area Heraclius traversed in order to outmaneuver the Persian armies to the south. The wealthiest part of the region was around Trebizond, 
along the north coast, relatively well shielded from Arab assault by its forbidding mountain defences. Finally, bottom right was the home of the Anatolikon, the army which supported Leo III and Constantine V in their bids for the throne. Their headquarters at Amorium was one of the few true cities on the plateau, and hence was a frequent target of Arab raids. This area was mostly plateau, except for the Isaurian Mountains in the south and the Taurus in the east. This was also the home of the great flocks and herds of Byzantium, which were increasingly the main aim of rustlers from the Caliphate. The land most often raided by the Arabs was Cappadocia, which lies immediately west of the Taurus Mountains. You may know Cappadocia today from the pointed chimney-like rock formations that are featured on Turkish tourism brochures. The eroded limestone of the area allowed local Byzantines to carve out cave dwellings or even subterranean villages to use while the caliphate's armies rode past. As this brief survey should have made clear, life in eastern Anatolia was much harder than in the west. The constant Arab raids had reduced cities to rubble and villages to mud and weeds. One Arab geographer described Anatolia as consisting of only mountains, castles, fortresses, cave dwellings, and villages dug out of the rock. The people who remained in the east were forced to relocate to defensible positions. Forests, mountains, and caves might prove a good place to slip away to, but often it was just the local fort which became the rally point in times of attack. Watchtowers and underground grain stores were built. Increasingly, the richest landowners would take up posts in the theme armies. If they were going to protect their investment, then they needed to be involved in military operations. Slowly, a sense of estrangement from Constantinople was developing. We saw evidence of this in the Armeniacon rebellion against Irene's rule. The troops elected their own commander and refused to swear an oath of allegiance to the empress. They were eventually crushed, but the sentiment they expressed can be seen as evidence of resentment at orders coming from those in the capital who didn't have to deal with the harsh life on the frontier. As I may have hinted at in discussing iconoclasm, the need for religious purification may have been felt more keenly by the people living in the Anatolikon, annually reminded of their sins by the appearance of enemy troops, whereas the monks of Bithynia, who led the iconophile resistance, saw less need for stripping the beauty out of their religious expression. This growing cultural difference will make a major impact on the narrative in time. For now, though, it's important to note that although the West was better off and more secure, it too had seen city life shrink to its lowest extent. Professor Treadgold's map only shows seven cities in Anatolia with a population of more than 10,000 inhabitants. And that's on the optimistic end of these predictions. As you know, cities were already in decline by the time of Justinian because local landowners no longer felt the need to invest in public amenities. 
Imperial sponsorship maintained many urban centres, but once the wars with the Persians kicked in, the collapse came quickly. Many sacked settlements were never rebuilt, while others shrank to a small, defensible perimeter. Those on the coast tended to survive better than those in the interior. Their trading wealth and better physical defences helped them survive the transition. As you can see from the map, many settlements remained which might be called a city, but we wouldn't recognise them as such, and neither did the Arabs. Constantinople was probably the only city that resembled the ancient model, where public life was carried out in public spaces. Everywhere else, the need to maintain a defensive wall meant that cities had contracted in size. In some cases, the space was so small that the only people who lived there were the local officials, as in the local military commander, the bishop, perhaps an imperial administrator. It sounds like a terrible decline to modern ears, because we overwhelmingly live urban lives. However, the people of Anatolia just carried on living. Many of these cities look like they shrank to nothing, but actually people continue to live there, just outside the walls. The evidence of their existence is harder for archaeologists to see, but if there was paid work around or a market for produce, then people were there. They might live in a nearby village and only go to the city on business or to church or when the Arabs came visiting. Others did fine without a local city. They formed new connections within neighbouring villages, or got to know the nearest rich landowner who might become their customer, patron, or guardian. The vast majority of Romans lived rural lives, and so the collapse of cities didn't alter the balance of their existence in the way it would ours. Listener G asked specifically about the look of cities. I'll talk more about peasant dwellings in the next episode, and once I get to that science-technology episode one day, I will look into architecture generally. But I hope by now you can see that in Byzantium, after the rise of Islam, the classical look to a city was gone. Only in the capital, and perhaps a few rare exceptions elsewhere, were really large structures still maintained. There are two final stops on our tour, one north, one south. To the very north, the city of Cherson remains in our concerns, despite technically being under the control of the Khazars at this time. It will come back into the fold in the next century and maintained its cultural connections with the empire. It remained an important trading port and source of information for the emperors on events in the steppe lands. Meanwhile, way to the south, the island of Cyprus was under a dual administration. The population was of Roman stock, but the Arabs had captured it several times in the 7th century, and so now demanded half its tax revenue in exchange for leaving it alone. That's it. That's what currently made up the Byzantine Empire in 800 AD. Warren Treadgold estimates the empire's total population at 7 million, as opposed to 17 million back in 600 AD. Again, these are educated guesses. So that's what we're talking about. Next week, it's who we're talking about. 
I will examine the lives of ordinary Romans in greater detail. From the micro to the macro, if you want to know more about world history and how it all connects together on a global scale, then check out the podcast History of Our World. Rob Monaco does a great job tracing all the events that shaped our shared history and does so with a fantastic radio voice and sense of humour. He's just reached Republican Rome, so go check it out on iTunes or at podcasthistoryofourworld.com. I should just add that this is the last live podcast you'll get from me for a while. I'm going on holiday soon, my first break for 12 months, and I badly need it, so things will begin to slow down. I have three episodes in the can, so don't worry, things won't go silent, but once I come back, I'll have to start all over again. Uh, So please be patient, especially for those buying episodes and subscriptions. Do email me with any problems and I will get back to you. Wi-Fi is everywhere in the world, but please be patient and uh, I will reply as soon as I can.